Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to this unbelievable episode mm-hmm. <laughs> that mm-hmm. we are so excited to share with you today. We are recording this on May 18th, and Truly, I have no idea when we'll be able to release this episode because it's under embargo until further notice (laughs) from (laughs) Disney Uh, because, drumroll please, Charlotte and I got to take part in a roundtable press junket. Oh, my God. I, like, can't even believe I'm saying it. For Kenobi. (laughs) It's so crazy. It's so crazy. (laughs) I just, so we got to do a roundtable interview with <laughs> Moses Ingram, who plays Riva, the Inquisitor, uh, Deborah Chow, the director, and Ewan McGregor, Obi-Wan Kenobi himself. <laughs> we were so nervous. I cannot believe this even happened. Like, we are so grateful for to Disney for the opportunity this is a literal dream come true. <laughs> like, I I can't even actually we were all supposed to we were also supposed to interview um in the round table Hayden Christensen but at the last minute he couldn't do it which to be honest like it as as big of a deal as that would be for me everyone who's listening knows it's okay because we still had got to talk to you and McGregor Moses Ingram and Deborah Chow <laughs> literally Deborah Chow and it was such an amazing experience I cannot wait for you to all all to hear it yeah it was it was so great and. I know that if you listen to Sky Talkers, Charlotte and I talk a lot about our podcasting goals and goals that we set out for the show. And Charlotte and I usually have a little a little Sky Talkers meeting at the beginning of the year or end of end of the year around then to talk about things we're hoping for for the next year. And last year we were grateful to kind of begin doing some of these roundtable interviews for things like Visions. We got to do a one-on-one interviews actually for Visions before that premiered. Bad Batch, we did some roundtable, the Lego, we did some of these virtual interviews. Um, It was really the first time that we've gotten to partake in things like that. And we were so grateful. And it was, those were so fun. Those interviews were so fun and such a learning opportunity for us too. Um, Interviewing is a skill that Charlotte and I feel is one that we're always kind of growing in. It's not something we were super confident in when we first started podcasting and certainly not uh, with with create with Star Wars creators, it was like a whole new mm-hmm. ball game. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, in one of our goal meetings, uh, it sounds weird to say at meeting like we're a company or something. But uh, in one of our <laughs> meetings, it's of, good to set goals. Okay, yeah, it's good when, and when healthy we to set yearly setting, goals. <laughs> you know, we always talk about the white whales of who we would want on on Sky Talkers, and we absolutely have a Google Doc prepared of questions for Ryan Johnson and Dave Filoni and like all of those people that we regularly invite to our dinner. And, you know, we were, I was like, I think that we're going to get Deborah Chow. And Charlotte was like, okay. And I was like, no, (laughs) Deborah Chow this year. I want to talk to Deborah Chow about Kenobi. And we did. (laughs) I can't even, I don't know. I can't believe it. It just feels so wild. Um, I think we had always hoped that we might be invited to something like this but it seemed so next level quite honestly like the biggest of deals for Kenobi and anyway like Charlotte said we're just super super grateful to have been included and to have gotten the opportunity to talk to some amazing creators 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think just to go back to the goal setting conversation, I think Caitlin and I care so much about this podcast that we put like our heart and soul in in it, like honestly, so many hours and it's just so great. Um, we love it. We love everything about it. And to then have an opportunity like this that really just sort of nurtures that part of like our childhood selves that we're so always trying to get back to on this podcast with our love for the prequels, which like started everything. So ah, it's like, it's so overwhelming. Yeah, no, it's the most overwhelming. I mean, I, I got to tell you in McGregor that I love the prequels and that they were important to me. And well, I, I'm just, wow. I don't know. It's, it's kind of baffling and they were all so generous with their answers and talking to all of us. Like I said, it was Deborah Chow, Moses Ingram and Ewan McGregor. And we just had an absolute amazing time. Uh, It was very nerve wracking too. It was fun, but it was also very nerve wracking. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Very, very nerve wracking. (laughs) But we, we, we got it. It's fine. You can't even tell. I'm sure you can't even tell. (laughs) I I don't think, uh, again, we literally, we just got finished with these, with these round tables about 20 minutes ago. So uh, I'm pretty sure we're only getting the audio clips, uh, from this interview, not video. So it's probably good that no one can see us like so the nervous the panic <laughs> the panic <laughs> the entering a zoom room with you and mcgregor <laughs> it's just yeah. a lot so it's first, a lot it's so much guys the first one so we did deborah moses and then Ewan. and the first one with deborah she wasn't like her screen wasn't on like all of us got in the room first before she got there so it was like we were all there like you know smiles on and then she came and it was like okay there was like a beat of deep breath. Okay, now she's here. Let's begin. But with Moses and Ewan, they were already there. So we were all like coming in, turning the video on. And I was like, oh my God. Oh my God. He's there. He's, he, whoa. Oh, <laughs> he's whoa. right there. <laughs> Clear as day. HD. <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, yeah. All right. We've been talking a lot about our experience and I'm sure you just want to hear the interviews. So let's go straight into it. First, we'll do Ewan McGregor. And then following that is our interview with Moses Ingram. And then following that will be our interview with Deborah Chow. And this is a roundtable interview that included several different Star Wars outlets. So they are also included in the audio. So without further ado, let's get started. So who talks first? You talk first. I talk first. Pleasure to meet you, sir. My name is Dan Zare from Coffee with Kenobi. Oh, wow. Okay. How are you? Wonderful. Wonderful. So naturally, Deborah Chow, the script and your history with Obi-Wan are essential to your performance. But for you as an actor, what steps did you take to inhabit the legendary Jedi Knight from an emotional and spiritual perspective? Um, well, I feel that that kind of thing is all uh, to do with the writing. You know, we took a character that we know and love from Alec Guinness in the original movie in the 70s to through the work that I did in episode one to three, you know, showing the, knowing the character from his early days as a Padawan to being on the Jedi council with Yoda and the other Jedi council members to then becoming this wise, solitary sage, like spiritual man. And we sort of took him into a very different place. Um, At the beginning of the series, we know what's happened at the end of episode three. 
he's lost all the the his friends and those who weren't killed in Order 66 are in hiding in the far corners of the galaxy and they're not able to communicate with one another. So we took him to sort of slightly, he's also crushed with the guilt that he feels about losing Anakin to the dark side. And um, so we took him to a very dark, broken place. A, a man who's lost his faith, I guess it's true to say. I don't know, I don't know how you do that. Like, I don't think about it. I don't analyze how I, I don't have a method to do that, but I just did that. I don't know. I don't question it too much acting. And I, I, I don't, um, I don't have a, like a method to it other than putting myself in the person's shoes that I understand and trying to find the truth of any given moment. And that's what we did with me and Deborah and the rest of the crew. Hi, you and my name's James Burns from Jedi Hello, News. James. I'm very I'm good, nice thanks. Sorry, yep, nice to meet you. Um, my question is, since Revenge of the Sith, you've done 35, 40 films, and you're, why now? Why, why, why this particular moment to come back to this iconic character? I think it's a combination of lots of things. Uh, I don't think it would have happened had I not had a sense of the um, fondness that there is for the prequels with the generation of people we made them for, you know, the people who were young people when, when they came out. The, the, the noise that we had, the, the sort of feedback that we had when they came out was that they weren't not liked. And um, that's because we could only really hear the critics. There was no social media. There wasn't, there wasn't the same sort of avenue for hearing the voice of the audience. And also the audience were children. So, um, but lately in the last five years or so, I've started having a real sense of the fondness that there is for the prequels from the people we made them for. And that's felt really, really good. And um, I also could, at the same time, could feel this huge desire for there to, as there were spin-off movies being made about Han Solo and um, other characters, I, I could feel that there was a real desire to have an Obi-Wan Kenobi spin-off, whatever it be, a movie or in this case, a TV series. So I think the combination of those two things happening at the same time um, lead us to be where we are right now. Hey, Ewan. My name is Caitlin Plusher from Sky Talkers podcast. Um, firstly, as someone from the prequel generation, thank you so much. Uh, we're so excited to see Obi-Wan back again. Oh, cool. Great. Good. Thank you. My first question was, you just spoke about how Obi-Wan is a broken man at the start of the show and has lost his faith and is at his lowest point. At the point when we meet him in the show, what does Obi-Wan believe in? Does he still have hope for the future? I think it's it's difficult to say exactly. And in a way, you'll have to be the judge of that. Because for me playing him, I, I felt different things about it at different times. There, um, The one thing I can tell you is that he has one responsibility left to his old life as a Jedi, and that is... Um, looking over Luke Skywalker, and that's I, that you could you could argue that's because he feels like Luke Skywalker would need to be trained if he shows signs of the Force. If he's Force sensitive, then he, he he should train him to be a Jedi. But at the same time, at least um, cerebrally, I guess 
he feels like the Jedi Order is over. So there's a sort of contradiction there. And I don't know exactly how it's going to feel. I just know when I played it, I felt both of those things, that there is still hope in Obi-Wan Kenobi because he still has this desire to protect Luke Skywalker. And um, that could just be because he promised Padme that he would and he feels a responsibility to that. But also I feel like there's a sense in some of the dialogue with Owen that it's Owen certainly feels it's because Obi-Wan wants to train Luke Skywalker. And um, so we'll see. You'll, you'll, you'll have to see. <laughs> I've already given away too much. Hi, I'm Trisha Barr from Fangirl Blog. Again, loved the prequel trilogy, so thank you uh, for no, thank expressing you. our gratitude. Um, you said in recent interviews that you had trouble getting the Obi-Wan voice coming back to it. So what is the difference between Obi-Wan Kenobi's voice and Ewan McGregor's voice? Well, I'm Scottish and Obi-Wan Kenobi is not Scottish. So he is, a, uh, he is an English voice and... Um, but more than that, he's Alec Guinness's voice, you know. And I, I never tried to do like an impersonation of Alec Guinness, but I always wanted it to sound like we would, that I become him, you know, that in, in the years to come, I am Alec Guinness because that's, that was my job in the prequels was to be the young Alec Guinness. So there's a certain kind of phrasing and the sound to uh, uh, rhythms and a, a sound to, the way he delivers his lines in, in A New Hope that I always try and sort of nod my hat at or tip my hat at or something. But, um, I mean, I didn't have a problem getting his voice back by the time we started shooting the series because I'd done my homework before we started shooting the series. But we just we had that, we did a casting session with one of the other characters months before we started shooting. And, and, and at that, I didn't... I hadn't given any, I hadn't put in any work in yet. I had to go away and remind myself. I had to listen to lots of Alec Guinness um, interviews and um, watch, and I had a sound file made of just his dialogue from the three Star Wars films that he was in. And um, I just had to remind myself of that because it just, it's just a particular, it's not just an English accent. You know, I was, what I was doing in that casting session was just a sort of general English accent. And it, it just didn't sound very Obi-Wan Kenobi-esque to me. Thank you. I, I still think it's surreal that Coffee with Kenobi's talking to Obi-Wan Kenobi. Love that. So you talked about getting back um, with your voice and doing the, the research because that's your pro. That's what you do. But physically, getting back into Jedi training shape, you're, a, you're in good shape already. But wielding a lightsaber is not an everyday occurrence, at least not at least well, for my eight-year-old it is, but not for me. So what was that like to get back athletically into lightsaber shape? Well, we did a lot of fight training with Jojo, our brilliant fight coordinator. Part of that was like lightsaber drills because I was working with Moses and um, but Obi-Wan doesn't isn't using the force at the beginning of the series. So he's he's also not using his lightsaber. And uh, so we'll have to see. All I know is that I got really fit for it. I know that they're 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 there was a lot of action in the series and that involves an enormous amount of energy when you're shooting a sequence, maybe all day long of, you know, fight, whether it be a lightsaber fight or another kind of fight, um, that can be a sort of, you need a bit of endurance there, a bit of stamina. So I made sure that I was as fit as I'd ever been really. I was also, you know, 20 years older than I was almost when I did it last. So, um, 
I just I just got in really good shape for it. Um, I'm assuming this was your first time shooting on the volume using stagecraft. So can you explain a little bit how different that was to filming the prequels, which was obviously a lot of green screen and blue screen, and here you're completely immersed in your environment. Yeah, uh, it was it was um, very it was very different. I mean, it was it's exactly as you described. You've sort of answered your own question. Uh, we weren't in we weren't in front of blue screens and green screens. We were surrounded by the actual environment that we were supposed to be in. And um, the technology is unbelievable, and it's really a game changer for us. It's, it's you know, in episode two, I spent weeks walking around in front of a blue curtain, acting to a tennis ball on a stick when I was with those alien people who are making the um, clone armies. I, I mean, I just was on my own in a blue set for days and days and days, speaking into thin air. So it, it's a hard... It's hard to do that in in the in the new stagecraft set. The volume, you know, it's, you can look anywhere up, round anywhere. You see the desert. If you're in the desert, you see the desert going off into the distance. You know, they can put they can put digital extras into the background. They can have once they can have um, spacecraft land. You can see them come in and land. You know, they it's like being there and. Um, that makes it just, just like night and day. I mean, I understand why it happened. Like George was, George Lucas was at the forefront of a new technology. He was pioneering digital cameras and he was pioneering visual effects, um, the, the creation of ILM and the, the way that we make, uh, the way we make visual effects nowadays was was ha was at the forefront. He was at the forefront of that then, and so of course, as somebody who is doing that work, he's going to want to exercise that technology as much as he can, and that was his right to do so. And it also gave the prequels their look, and um, you know, he was able to sort of world build in a way, the only way that we could then. And uh, but for us, that meant more and more blue screen and um, less and less sets. And uh, it, it was, it's just unfortunate for the actors because it's a, not an easy way to work, but I get, I get it, totally. Hi, Ewan, I'm Charlotte Arity from Sky Talkers. Um, hi. Hi, I wanted to ask you, what was it like working with Deborah Chow and seeing her vision for Star Wars? And how does that compare to working with George Lucas? Well, you don't compare right. uh, directors, I wouldn't. I mean, they're so different from one another anyway. Every director you work with, on a new piece of work is is a totally unique experience and directors work it's so much about personality and taste and uh the the art the artistry of that of, of the director is very very difficult to put your finger on so you don't really compare them um george like i said george was working in a as a director but he's also he produced the series he created the world that we worked in and he was at the forefront of ILM and digital cameras and um, his the, the creation of his Dolby sound. I mean, uh, uh, he was doing an enormous of many things. Um, and also he's, he, he was our director for those first three films, you know, and he, he, he made the films he wanted to make. He took them in a different direction from the original uh, movies of the seventies because he felt like he wanted to, 
make them in a different way, tell slightly different story. Um, and then with this, Deborah came on board and she worked so well with the writers, but she took the writing in all different directions. So we really honed in on the, on the story that we wanted to tell, but she's a brilliant director on set. She, you could see that the, the crew work really like raised to their A game for her. And she's a very quiet, powerful director. Um, she's very good with the actors. She was very good, you know, with younger actors. She was amazing in terms of getting performances out of them. Um, and she worked really well with all the heads of department. And there's a lot of people involved, you know. And the planning that goes into shooting something on the volume, you, you can't just... The volume has to be, like, loaded. The, the, every background has to be loaded onto that. It takes a long time. You can't just you know, switch it around like a flick of a switch. So the planning that had to go into what we shot on the volume, what we shot on location, what was going to, you know, was was really intricate. And um, she did an amazing job at that. And we, you know, we finished on the day we were supposed to finish. There was no, we had, we never shot on the weekends. We, we finished work at a reasonable hour. We, you know, it was really a proficient job all around. But mainly I, I would say that her strength is that she, she has her vision and her, and her vision goes through every episode of this. And um, yeah, I'd, I, I'd be happy to work with her again on anything. Obviously we saw Obi-Wan in films, but this story is told in a television series. What's the advantage of doing the story in that format? I think it's, it lends itself to um, the sort of episodic nature, although we are telling us uh, one narrative, like it's 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 not episodic in the way the Mandalorian is a bit more, you know, each episode is a little bit more standalone in the Mandalorian, although there is a driving story from eight, from the first to the last episode. Ours is like a long, I feel like it's like a long movie, which is broken into the episodes um, in, the in the appropriate places. Uh, I, it, it, it felt, to me, it felt like we made a big, um, a long movie. That's all. It just didn't feel any different to me. We certainly, you know, this new technology I haven't worked on before anyway, so it's not like I've got anything to compare it to, but it, it felt to me like we just, we, we approached it as a movie, like one story, and we shot it that way, and um, the technology helped us to do that. But I think that I think it's very satisfying to have longer. It's nice to have, you know, six hours to tell this story as opposed to, you know, an hour and 20 minutes. Clearly, Star Wars is not something new for you as an actor, but there are a lot of new actors in this, a lot of new members of the crew that have not worked on Star Wars before. But you have a new role that is an executive producer. What was that like in bringing that to the table for this production? I was just involved from the very beginning. You know, I came I came at it because. Disney asked me to come in because I was always asked at the end of all my interviews whether I would, like for years, would I make a sequel to Train Spotting and would I ever play Obi-Wan Kenobi again? It was like guaranteed the last two questions of any interview. When the publicist comes in and says, that's enough, you have to wrap up last question. That would be my last two questions. And so I just started answering honestly. And I, and I you know, I felt the sort of, like I'm saying, the warmth of the people who love the sequels. And I just started thinking there must be this, story that would that would sit between episode three and four 
a good story in there. And so they got, they called me in and I'm starting to think I've told you this already, did I? Okay. So the Disney started, they called me in and they said, look, would you, we keep reading that you, that you say you'd play this role again. Do you mean it? And I said, yeah, I, I do mean it. I think it would be good. I think there must be a good story between three and four. And so we started talking then it was with Kiri at, who was working at Lucasfilm at the time. And we started talking about what it could be and that the Star Wars world was so big and that it has expanded into all these different directions that it could be any kind of story. It could be a small character-driven story. And I, all I thought was, all I had in my head at the time was, is to have a broken Obi-Wan Kenobi, like a, a man who's living um, in a, a bleak life. Like he's lost his faith. He's lost his best friend. He's lost his all his, um, everyone he knew and loved is gone, either in hiding or, or dead. And um, that he's trying, and he's not able to live as a Jedi anymore. He can't. So um, I just thought that was an interesting place to start. And that's where we started talking about it. And then it went through lots of iterations. It was a movie. Stephen Daldry was going to direct it at one point, And we, we did some work, um, Stephen and I, and we met in New York for a weekend with a writer and um, some a producer and some people from Lucas World, and uh, we um, sort of brainstormed ideas for a whole for two days over um, one weekend, and it was just interesting to talk to talk about different storylines, potential storylines, and and how I felt about them as the person who was going to play them, and sort of talking about Obi Wan from the inside, if you like. And then it then it went to Deborah's hands and. Um, because Stephen had a conflict of, a, he had another franchise he was directing and our dates suddenly because of delays or whatever. Anyway, he couldn't do it in the end. And Deborah had directed a couple of episodes of The Mandalorian and Kathleen Kennedy really liked her and I met her and I really liked her. And um, it was just brilliant. From then on, she, she took over. She did amazing work with the writers. The storyline sort of shifted quite dramatically from one storyline to another at one point, and I feel like that was a bit of a breakthrough. And now we're now um, she just she just drove it through. So, I, but all, all of this time, I you know I I wasn't working with the I wasn't in the room with the writers, but but Deb was, and and I would just read every version of the scripts as they came through, and they just kept getting better and better. You know, I was just involved in that way. I, I wasn't heavily involved, you know, but uh, but it was nice to be involved from start to finish. All right. And that's all the time we have for this roundtable today. Thank you all okay. very much for coming. Hey, thank you so much, Ewan. Thank nice, you. guys. Bye, thank Mark. You. See you next week. Thank you, Ewan. See you there. Well, it's wonderful to speak with you. Thank you so much. Uh, question for you. So how do the Inquisitors from Star Wars Rebels and the lore of Star Wars influence your performance? Well, you know, actually, it was really important for me to get to know it on its own outside of what was written. Um, so yeah, mainly for me, my prep was really with the prequels and like the timeline that we were in and trying to figure out everything that I could about the space that we were about to attack. Nice to meet you, Moses. You too. Um, we are really excited about your character and um, can't wait to see, to see you on screen. Did you do a lot of research in terms of going back to the animated series 
to to see how the inquisitors were were portrayed there no no i really just focused on the prequels um in terms of you know getting cozy in the timeline with where we were what motivates Riva, and what is pushing her on her journey to Obi-Wan? Well, it's her job as a subordinate of Darth Vader as a Jedi hunter, and we're here in this series with the Jedi. And so, you know, she's going to do her job to the best, best of her ability. She plays the offensive, and she's always 10 steps ahead. In The Queen's Gambit, you played the best friend of a chess champion, but it seems like what we've seen so far that your character, Reva, might be playing some chess. Other than obviously playing with a lightsaber, what else did you enjoy about playing Reva? It was great because every day was different. You know, super, you know, I mean, obviously you read what you have coming in the next day, but sometimes it's, it's even more fun to see, you know, which ways we might have to redo a thing to make it work better or undo a thing to change things. It just, it's, I feel like it's always just this moving wheel um, that you really got to be on your A game to stay on. So I'd love to hear your description of when you first walked on the set and they handed you your lightsaber prop and then seeing yourself on screen in full costume for the first time with your special effects added to that legendary weapon. Yeah, it's really crazy. So it actually happens in parts. So in the gym, you have to train with your weapons and things. And so as it was in process, um, Brad, our props master, would come in and, you know, sort of shape it to my hands as we would as we would go along. And so he'd come in with like this black box and <laughs> open it up and there would be my piece, which was like always really exciting for me. Um, and that first day that we're on set um, is actually, it's in the trailer where we're like coming off of the ship and into this big hole in the ground. And um, it's just so surreal. And I think that's also the first time that, cause be, because we play in rehearsal with dummy ones too. So I had never had it lit when we were rehearsing. But seeing it lit the first time in front of you, like in action, is crazy. It's really crazy. Uh, when you're on BBC One show uh, last <laughs> week, you talked about, or you started to talk about some of the um, learning, some of the fight scenes and some of the training that you went through. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you could just talk talk to us about that because it was it was quite an ordeal to to do all of that training. It was actually, I was a full on athlete <laughs> during the shooting of this project. And you know, five days a week of your regular like running and strength training and then Jedi school on top of that, which is like a lot of core strength and then implementing all of the training and agility with your stunt training. Um, but it was also, even though it was intense, it was really fun because I'd be in the room with Ewan or Hayden would be in the room and we'd be on different, different sides of the room. Um, but you just get inspired by how hard people are working. You want to rise to the occasion. And so it was hard, but certainly, certainly worth it. Rose, it's great to talk to you today. You too. I was wondering if you could talk about the costume of Reba. What was it like putting it on? How did you feel in it? 
Um, that was also another really surreal moment. <laughs> I actually got a little misty putting it on, you know? I felt like l the little kid in me was just elated to be in this really slick suit. Our costume designer, Sudorat, did an amazing job building this costume that does a lot of the work um, for you, you know? You step into it and it doesn't allow you to slouch. It just holds you up and holds you together. and It's very grand and, um, Surreal, sick, yeah. You're coming into a show where two of the actors have a long relationship together and in Star Wars in particular. What did you learn from you and Hayden on this show? You know, they really do lead by example. So many people love them and have personal memories with them that they don't even know about and they're so gracious every time. I think on this press tour, that's one of the things that's been really rewarding for me to see is people seeing you and Hayden together on the street and just stopping in their tracks, sometimes crying, laughing themselves to tears even. Um, it brings a lot of people a lot of joy and um, I think that's probably been the best, the best part from the outside. And so now you're going to get that kind of reactions when you're out. So I'm, I would love to know what do your family and friends think about you being a part of this huge galaxy? It's funny because, so when the initial announcement came out, there was of course excitement and joy. Oh my God, you're gonna be in Star Wars. And as we started the press tour, I've actually had more friends be like, I didn't know you were in Star Wars. I thought you were just like in it. I didn't realize you were like in it. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I'm actually in it. <laughs> so that's really, that's really funny. So it's like another wave of excitement now that they're like, I mean, I just thought, I thought, you know, you'd be there for like a couple seconds, but you know, yeah. I think it's, it, it's amazing to hear those reactions and things. Yeah. What was, what was your grounding in Star Wars? Where did, what did you know about Star Wars before you came into this project? Were you a fan? Well, I knew, you know, I mean, in pop culture, it's like, Darth Vader is the villain and Obi-Wan is like the archetypal hero. And then of course I had a lightsaber like most kids do and you know, I think I think I was more blessed though to discover Star Wars via being cast um, than to have seen the movies when I was a kid coming up. You know, because now it's tied to so many personal memories and moments for me and people for me um, in a way that I appreciate more. I think in some ways it would have been harder having loved so Star Wars so much at the top, you know, to like focus and like work without pressure at the beginning. You know what I mean? So, yeah. yeah. And now you're going to be creating those memories for other people. Yeah, feel really blessed. What three words would you use to describe Riva? Hmm. I'm gonna try to use three I haven't used yet. Um, deadly. Ooh, part of me wants to say Slytherin, but maybe maybe that's not a good good one. But I, I I'll say deadly and offensive and present. And Trisha, you can take the next one. 
I read that you had some input into the uh, design of Riva's hair. Could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, well, yeah, the original hair design, um, it was just something that my hair doesn't do um, on its own. It would have taken a lot of work to make my hair do what we wanted originally. And Deborah Chow, our director, bless her, was really welcoming in having me be a part of the process of developing who Reba would be. And so it was really important for me that when kids with hair like mine, you know, potentially want to be me for Halloween, they can wear their own hair and not have to don a wig because I donned a wig, you know what I mean? So that was really important to me. That's how we ended up with the braids. For the physicality of this role, uh, more specifically, of course, the fight sequences and the, the lightsaber training, how challenging was that? I, I must admit, I mean, it's one thing to play when you're a kid, like we've all done, but when you're doing it and you know you're going to face off against you and McGregor and, Hayden, and you know, you've got that going for you, what was that like? Um, it's, it's, it's tough, you know what I mean? That first day in particular, you and I were in training and he picks up the lightsaber and of course he's been doing this for years and so he's just whipping and twirling it like it's not anything. And I'm having trouble just keeping it in my hand for certain simple twirls, you know what I mean? And then there are the other things, you know, you know, different details of why my character can't spin it a certain way. And so even though something might be easier, it's like, Storyline-wise, too, there are things that you have to consider in learning the lightsaber as well. And so, if at first you don't succeed, try and try again. But once you get it, you feel really confident at it, or I did at least. How was it working on the volume using the stagecraft technology? Because I'm assuming that you'd never experienced that that way of working before. No, I hadn't. The scale of this project is um, definitely something I'd never experienced. It's funny listening in comparison to you and, and Hayden talk about it. You know, we'll be on set and they'll be like, wow, this is really something. We were acting with tennis balls and blue screens and this is just, it's different for you, Moses. You know, which I'm really grateful for. I don't have to do, I didn't have to do much pretending. You step into the volume and it is, it really is hyper-realistic. Um, so wherever the machine shows you you are, you feel like you are in that place. And they make the floors match as well. It's pretty crazy. So what was it like to be on the dark side team with Darth Vader himself? Pretty sick pretty sick yeah i mean like i said like he's the villain even when we were doing our um our vanity fair shoot standing next to you know vader is like large <laughs> very large you know what i mean and so it's it's pretty crazy pretty surreal is the best word yeah surreal when you um think about this character and the impact that she's going to have, what do you hope people take away from Reba? Hmm. What do I hope people take away from Reba? You know, I mean, I hope they enjoy the overall story, I guess, you know, and how it all plays together as a unit. I mean, it's super dope to be 
it's super fun for me to be the villain and um, I hope they're able to feel in it the fun that we have making it. So when you've done all your work and it's time for whatever you're making, whether it's Obi-Wan Kenobi or something else, how do you watch it for the first time? Are you, or are you an actor who doesn't watch their work? I don't watch. <laughs> I don't watch. If I have to watch it with an audience, um, I'll, I'll, I'll watch with the audience because it feels like the respectful thing to do a lot of times with premieres. But aside from that, I don't. Yeah. Have you had an opportunity yet to see yourself immortalized as a three and three quarter inch or a six inch action figure? I have. <laughs> and? And it is crazy. <laughs> it has my dimensions, which is even wilder to me. It's like, it's me, but like in miniature form. And it has my face. <laughs> it's so crazy. Yeah, it makes me giddy still. At least you know what to get everyone now for their birthday. <laughs> Here's me. You're welcome. Thank you. So what was it like to work with Deborah Chow? Deborah Chow is amazing. Um, and she really does and did work around the clock to make this amazing for the people who love it so much. And she doesn't complain. And so welcoming to everyone into this with her in building, you know, she's just so free of ego and unthreatened by anyone. And, you know, energy on set works top down. And I think it was so cool because Deborah is so cool. So cool. Every production has a challenge and every actor has a challenge. What was your challenge on this show, Kenobi? If I had to call something challenging, I would say, uh, it, it would have to be the level of athleticism that was required for this. But it's really, it's, it, it wasn't like um, off-putting in any way. It was still so fun to be a part of and to do every, every day and to challenge, challenge our bodies in that way was really dope as well. Good to see everybody. Thank you, Deborah, for your time. Absolutely. So question, bringing Obi-Wan to life was no easy task. With several challenges along the way, what was important for you to capture about this iconic character, and how did the journey to the series help prepare you? Um, you know, it, it definitely was a challenging series, uh, and in large part, obviously, because we're dealing with legacy characters and we're in between two trilogies. Um, so there's quite a responsibility, you know, to the characters and to, and to the canon. Um, and at the same time, obviously, we wanted to tell an original story. So I think, you know, the starting place and the ending place for us was always character, is that, you know, this was a series about Obi-Wan Kenobi, and I think... Um, the limited series format gives us a great opportunity to kind of get deeper and have more time with the character than if we'd done a feature or something. Um, so we were just very excited to try to really get deeper into the character. Hi, Deborah. Very nice to meet you. Um, following your exemplary work on The Mandalorian, uh, coming to uh, this series where you're working on your own, whereas the work on The Mandalorian is very collaborative. You're working with lots and lots of other different um, directors and things. So how was that process? Um, it was really different. You know, Mandalorian, I think one of the things that was pretty amazing about that show was that team and was that collaborative effort. Um, and I'd never had that experience. I mean, that's very unusual, you know, I think for directors to get to work so closely with each other. Um, so that was a super cool experience. Um, it was very different, obviously, coming on to Kenobi. 
Uh, but I was so thrilled and honestly, I was so grateful to be able to do the whole thing, especially because it is one big show and one big story. Um, because it's, there's something wonderful about just being able to see a vision through all the way from beginning to end and get to work with the actors on every nuance of character, knowing what you're building for the arc. Hi, Deborah. Thanks so much for your time. I was wondering, previously you've referenced loving sci-fi and fantasy and just genre in general. And I was wondering what were some of your artistic influences that you brought into this series specifically? Um, yeah, I love genre. Uh, and I love, you know, and for Star Wars, the galaxy is so detailed and it's the world building is just so incredible on the, on the um, in the galaxy. So I was really excited to kind of have a few new planets and, and get to expand on that world building. So, you know, we looked at a lot of references and I worked pretty closely with Chung Hoon and also Doug Chang and, and Todd on the production design side. Um, you know, say for something like Dayu, which is a planet, you know, that we do visit in the series. I was really looking at a lot of Wong Kar Wai. I was looking at like In the Mood for Love, Chungking Express, you know, Hong Kong Night Market, that sort of feel to it. Um, and then some of the references that, you know, just going into Tatooine and just in terms of telling the story, um, like for me, you know, I was looking at a lot of references to Westerns and Samurais for Mandalorian. Uh, but if that was sort of more of a classic genre, a classic Western genre, I was looking a lot at things like the proposition, assassination of Jesse James, things that were a little bit more emotional um, and a little bit more sort of atmospheric for the series. Hey, Deborah, thank you so much for your time. My question was, you were recently quoted in Vanity Fair saying that across the saga films, there is a love story dynamic between Anakin and Obi-Wan. Is there a thin line between love and hate, though, when it comes to these two characters, knowing that now Anakin is defined by the dark side of the Force and Obi-Wan the light? Um, I definitely think there is. Uh, and I think, you know, in terms of that, obviously, when we left Obi-Wan and Anakin, the last thing he said to him was, you were my brother, Anakin. I loved you. Um, you know, so I think, you know, we're dealing with a very intense relationship with the two of them and they have a, a tremendous amount of history together so I think you know as in any human relationship you know whether it's your brother or your mother or whoever it is you know the capacity to hate so much is often driven by the fact that you care so much so love and hate get so intertwined. Hi um, part of Star Wars success has been its timeliness in the stories that it's telling so why is now the right time to tell the story of Obi-Wan Kenobi at this point in his life? Um, I think it's the right time for a number of reasons. I think, you know, one of the biggest reasons is Ewan McGregor um, and where he is in his life and his age. Um, for me, I think he feels like he's sort of the exact right age to play this character at this point in the timeline. Um, you know, the, he's still, you know, he's got the wisdom, he's got the life experience, but he still has enough youth and vigor that, you know, he still feels like he's connected to both sides of the trilogy. Um, and I think for us, you know, obviously we're between the two trilogies and there's a 20 year gap that starting in the middle felt like a very interesting place that kind of connects us on both sides. So from a storytelling perspective, how do you balance what we know about this character from the extensive Star Wars lore with a new and fresh approach to add a new chapter to his considerable story? Um, yeah, I would say that was definitely been the most challenging aspect of the project is, you know, inheriting all the legacy aspect and wanting to really respect the canon and respect everything that's already been established. Um, but at the same time, trying to tell that original story. But I think I think for us and I think for particularly with Ewan and Hayden, one of the things that we were all the most interested in was that it was, you know, we're 
telling another, we're telling a new story with these characters, but we're telling it at a different point in their lives. Um, so they're not exactly the same people that they were obviously when they were younger or when they get older. So it was very interesting to kind of take on these characters, but at a different stage. So we go back to um, some familiar places such as Tatooine and to the homestead. How difficult was it bringing those sort of locations to life and keeping them, keeping the authenticity? Because there's there's millions of people around the world that know know those scenes inside out. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things when you go into production, and especially on something like this, is that every single detail matters so much. Um, and, you know, in the fan base, they know <laughs> and they care so much. And that's kind of an amazing thing because, you know, when you're creating it and trying to make it, everything matters. Um, but it's also a lot to live up to, obviously. So, you know, when we're re recreating something like The Homestead, there's extensive, you know, we're doing extensive research and looking back at every reference to try to make sure that we have every single detail as correct as possible. And we're also looking going, okay, we're in between two, you know, the time periods here. What would this have looked like 10 years earlier or whatnot? So um, one of the things I think that was tremendously helpful for us is that um, Doug Chang uh, was very involved with us and he's a co-production designer. And he obviously worked on the prequels and you know he's, he's done so much for Star Wars. So he was a tremendous resource. What is your Star Wars defined by? Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think Star Wars for me um, is about several things in, in sort of the big way is that I feel like it's something that has always been connected to family where it's like, you know, I saw it for the first time with my family and it feels like something you do with your family. So it's very intertwined with um, an experience of seeing it with your family. Um, I think uh, on another part, aspect of it, it's always felt like a very inclusive gal galaxy where, you know, there's droids, there's creatures, there's people from all different planets. Um, so it's always sort of felt like everybody could have a place in this galaxy, which I think is a really nice thing. Um, and then I think just some of the eternal themes that Star Wars represents, hope, um, and especially, you know, this series, like trying to f maintain hope in dark times, uh, just feel very universal. New Star Wars projects often reveal a new side of the Force that audiences may not have seen before. Does Kenobi explore the Force or its influences over characters like Obi-Wan and Vader in any new ways? Um, you know, it's interesting because obviously we're bringing the Inquisitors in um, and they're coming into live action for the first time. So, you know, we're using, and obviously a lot of it's been defined already and, you know, we're respecting everything that they've done. But that was an interesting way to kind of have a, a new aspect to it and have a new aspect and see force wielders that we haven't seen before in live action. We know that John Williams wrote Obi Kenobi's theme for the score. How did that come about? Did you reach out to him or how did that happen? Um, we did reach out and we were just extremely fortunate um, that you know he had this small gap of time in which he could do it. Um, so I'm tremendously grateful and honestly, I, I honestly can't believe how fortunate we were that he was able to do it. Um, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, when we were looking at kind of a lot of the canon and the music, he was one of the only characters that John hadn't written a theme for. So um, we were so lucky that he, he was willing to do it. So uh, you had mentioned earlier when James asked a question about working on The Mandalorian, but there, there's obviously a collaborative effort when you're looking at The Mandalorian. And of course, with anything Star Wars related, when you're focusing on this one specifically, what new challenges did you go through as a filmmaker? 
Um, and, you know, I think there were a few, like we obviously made this during COVID. Um, so the entire thing was made through a pandemic, uh, which is very tricky. You know, a lot of our prep had to be remote. Um, you know, when we started shooting, there was no vaccine. Um, so it was quite stressful in a lot of ways. So that was quite a challenge. Um, you know, and I think, I think the difference with this one is that, you know, the legacy aspect and just these are incredibly iconic characters and we are in the middle of a story. You know, we're telling almost the second act of a story that everybody knows the beginning and the end of. Um, so it's, it can be daunting and you want to respect that legacy, but at the same time, you also want to do something new with it. So I think, I think those are the most challenging things. Just a few days off the first two episodes streaming on Disney Plus and expectation amongst fans is, you know, palpable. Everybody is, is, is sort of desperate to see these, these, these two episodes. And then we've got Star Wars Celebration as well, where tens of thousands of Star Wars fans are going to be converging. What do you want them to be talking about next Friday after those two episodes have dropped? Um, hopefully about wanting to watch episode three. <laughs> Um, you know, I just hope, you know, I think, you know, with this series, you know, the expectations obviously are very high. Um, and I think, you know, one of the biggest things that I, if we could connect with the audience where they could actually feel sort of an emotional connection and really feel connected to Obi-Wan as a character and really get on board with his journey, I think that's the thing that we're hoping for the most. You were one of the first to work with the volume on The Mandalorian, and I wanted to know how has that developed for you and how was using it in this show specifically? Um, I loved, honestly, the technology and, you know, getting to do that on Mandalorian and also, like, we were just the advent of that. It was so interesting to me and I was so into it. Um, so I was very excited to get to do that on Kenobi for, for this show. Um, and one of the things that was really interesting is that, you know, a few years have passed, obviously, and things that we couldn't do on Mandalorian in first season, we could do by the time I came to Kenobi. So, you know, the technology is continually advancing. Um, and the other thing I think for me that was ex really exciting was getting to actually develop the material, knowing that we're going to shoot it with stagecraft. So, you know, you could already be starting to write the scenes or write the environments or think of the blocking with knowing what you're going to be doing in stagecraft mentioned earlier the Inquisitors, and I was wondering if you could talk more about the process of developing characters for the Inquisitors into Kenobi. Um, yeah, so we, you know, obviously two characters are coming, the Grand Inquisitor and Fifth are coming straight from Rebels and coming with, and then um, I worked with Dave pretty closely, obviously on Mandalorian, so Dave was always sort of a touch point, as well as Doug Chang, you know, so um, I'm fortunate Lucasfilm that there are these people that you can always go to as a resource, which is great. Um, and then for Reva, like say someone, the character of Reva, who's played by Moses Ingram, I was very excited actually to have a young dark side female character and to have a character that was new that nobody would know actually what's gonna happen or who she is. Um, and th that felt like a really exciting opportunity. Um, speaking of Moses Ingram, you ended up with your prominent returning characters are uh, white and you really were able to round out the cast with a lot of actors of color. Could you speak to that? Um, yeah, I think with the series, you know, because we are so, we have so many legacy characters and there is, you know, there is so much that established, I felt like it was quite important that the show also have some elements that were original and that were new, um, whether it be characters or, you know, going to a new planet. Um, so for me, I just, I really wanted to kind of have a, a, you know, a picture where that you felt that there was a lot of diversity 
in opinions, in characters, in droids, in everything, just represented on screen. So just uh, just as a fan, for you as a fan, how fun was it to see Hayden and Ewan reuniting and just every time you'd see them interacting, whether it was behind the camera or whatever, that must have been electric for you. Um, it was incredibly special. It was really special. Um, you know, and I think, you know, I'm sure as you guys know, they have a personal relationship as well beyond professional. And so there's there really is like a really lovely emotional connection between the two of them. So um, not only do they share this history of doing the prequels and then also having lived with these characters and, you know, in the public eye for so long, but also as people, you know, they're connected to each other. So sort of having that come back together so many years later, it felt very special. How is it seeing merchandise from characters and things that you've helped develop and create turn out? I mean, how how exciting is that for you? Um, it's pretty cool. <laughs> Whenever you get to see the action figures, like I'm, I'm still waiting to see a few of them on this one, but it is very cool. And it's it's another level. Like, you know, when you're making the show, you're just you're so busy that you're just trying to focus on kind of day by day with it. So you're not thinking about kind of the full picture of it. Um, so it's it's exciting actually kind of going into this new stage of finally being able to take it out into the world. You directed some of the best action sequences in The Mandalorian. And I was wondering, how was directing the action sequences in Obi-Wan Kenobi and what can we expect? Um, thank you. And I really actually love doing action. And it's something, you know, that I, I never expected to. But, you know, as I've kind of gone on with my career, I've really, really come to love it. So I think, you know, one of the biggest differences is obviously we were mostly blasters in Mandalorian. So there was a lot of shootouts. There was a lot of Western shootout, you know, shootouts going on. Whereas this one, we're, in, we're more into Jedis, obviously. So now we're into lightsabers and a range of different sort of weapons. Um, so it was really interesting getting to do action and design action um, with different weapons and different, different uses. You mentioned new and old planets that we'll be seeing in the show Kenobi. Can you talk more about developing the aesthetic of a show that does take place between Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope? Um, yeah, I think, you know, in, you know, we've shown in the trailer, I think, the planet of Dayu, and that was a really interesting planet where it's very different, obviously, than something like Tatooine. Um, and that's something for me that I've always loved about Star Wars is that you get to go to these new planets, you get to new, meet new characters, see new things. Um, so I was excited about, you know, going to some new planets. So say, for instance, with that planet, you know, we looked, Chung Hoon and I and, and Doug and, and Todd, we looked at a lot of references and I was thinking a lot about like Wong Kar Wai, obviously, and, and things like that. And it just, it's exciting getting to kind of develop an aesthetic that remains with the Star Wars vernacular, but also feels like something I haven't seen before. We see in the trailer the shot with young Luke Skywalker, and I'd like to know how, like, as you grew up a fan, how do, how did, what's the emotions of filming something like that? Yeah, I mean, it's not just young Luke Skywalker. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it was so much of this. It's like, I remember the first day, you know, I walked onto the set of the Lars, Lars Farm, and you're like, you know, it's so iconic, and you're standing in front of it, and the first thing you're like, it's like, wow, it's a lot smaller than I thought it was going to be. I think because it just looms so large in your head that you think it's it's going to be this huge thing. Um, so it it was strange, and it it was also like incredibly exciting, where it's like, you know, you have an emotional relationship to all of these characters in these places, so. It, it can feel very crazy sometimes to actually be directing it. Hey, thank, thank you so you, much. Thank you so Thanks. much. Thank you. Thank you. Listen, Big Deal. You got another problem. 
Women always figure out the truth. Always. Okay, so those were our interviews with Ewan McGregor, Moses Ingram, and Deborah Chow. We hope you guys enjoyed listening to them. If you have any thoughts, let us know. You can find us on Twitter at SkytalkersPod or our personal handles at Caitlin Plusher is mine or at Clarity is Charlotte's. We also have our website, skytalkers.com, our TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, all of those places. We would love to hear from you and hear what you think. And if you have left us a review on Spotify or iTunes, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And if you haven't yet and have a couple seconds, we would love it if you left us a review on your podcast platform of choice that really does help other people find our show. And if you're interested in other ways to support the show, you can head on over to our Patreon and check out our different reward tiers there. And I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons, Catherine, Lindsay, Lola, Froppy, Kat, Lauren, Hannah, Ephraim, Blast Points, Another Skywalker, John, Stephanie, Tom, Martin, Talking Bay 94, Talia, Daniela, and Heidi. Thank you all so much for supporting us. Your support means the world. And I also hope that we are seeing some of you all at celebration perhaps now when this episode comes out or we've all enjoyed Kenobi. We have no idea when this is going to come out, but I just wanted to say that any of those names that I read or any, if you've supported the show in any way, hopefully and you're coming to celebration, please come up to us. And hopefully we're seeing you now and we're interacting (laughs) and it's the best. (laughs) Yes. Hopefully we've already seen you and it's the future and we're all at celebration actually talking about Kenobi some more too. So (laughs) thank you guys so much. And until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you. (laughs) 